Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are as we continue our Christmas series, The Solas of Christmas, when we're looking at the five solas of the Reformation, the greatest historical event that's uh, 500 years old as of this past October, celebrating kind of the basics of our faith in that and connecting them to Christmas of sorts uh, this year. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, a classic text as we come to sola, what is called sola gratia. Last week we looked at sola scriptura. This week, sola gratia, which is grace alone. Following your own Bibles as I read out loud. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Well, if you were raised in church, or if you've been around church uh, for a while, uh, Christian, Christianity, though, the faith, this Jesus, has not changed you. If you have not experienced significant change in your life in some way, shape, or form, then there is most likely an ingredient in your Christianity that is missing. And most likely, it is the ingredient called Grace. It means most likely that for much of your life, you've been trying to do the religious thing and you've tried to do the, be the good boy and the good girl, but you've never embraced or come to understand this ingredient known as grace. How, do you, how would you define grace? We, it's a word we use a lot in the Christian church, grace. What does it mean? Well, it can, you can, there's a number of definitions you can give it from the scriptures. Uh, unmerited favor is probably the most popular one you would hear. But I'm going to simply call it, say it's this. It, it, it can be it's so much more than this, but it's, it can, I don't think it can be less than this. Grace is a gift. Grace means it's a gift from God. It's something that God gives you. It is by grace it says you have been saved. That means salvation is a gift. It says it's not done by your works. It is done by what God has done. So it may mean many other things, but it means not less than this, that grace is a gift. Now, we are about to all get gifts my kids are very excited about their gifts. It is a daily conversation in my house. In fact, it was a conversation on the way here in which my children were quizzing me. They were trying to quiz me or, or trick me, and they asked me quite subtly, Dad, have you gotten our gifts yet? And I said, oh, yes, we've gotten your gifts. What are they? Oh, no, no. You, you got to wait. You got to wait to find out what your gifts are. But there are gifts. Many of you will get gifts this year. And, 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 and for the most part, your, your thought about your gifts, you're going to go, that's nice. But the gifts that you're going to get on Christmas Day, none of them probably are going to be life-changing. None of them are going to change your life. None of them are going to amaze you. 
But that is what we would say grace is. Grace is the amazing gift. Grace is the gift that radically and utterly transforms and changes your life. My, my parents, for some reason, did not like to buy me clothes as a child. Um, I, the joke in my household was that we wore the, ch- the clothes that the missionary kids sent back. Remember back in the day, you talk about sending the, the missionary kids clothes in a barrel. And we said, we, we, we were clothed in the, in the clothes that they said, no. Now, we just can't, we can't go this low. And that's what we were put in. But once a year, once a year, we got new clothes. And once a year at Christmas, I got a new set of underwear. Fruit of the loom. Whitey tighties. And I got new church pants every year for Christmas. This never, oddly enough, changed my life. I just was not very excited. It did not amaze me that I got underwear and slacks every year for Christmas. But Christmas, at Christmas, we are given an amazing gift, an amazing gift that changes your life. Are you amazed by grace? If you're a believer and you have never been amazed, perhaps you need to ask yourself some questions. If you're somebody who's been amazed, but it's been a long, long time, we want to rediscover the amazing nature of grace. You know, that's what the Reformation was. What we're studying this uh, couple weeks is the, the, the Reformation and what they rediscovered or they found uh, once again in the Reformation, the scriptures, where they opened up the Bible, the reformers were looking through it and they were going and they were seeing a fresh and a new and rediscovering what the church in many ways had lost, which is an amazement at the grace of God. Robert uh, Farr Capone says there, or Capon says this in his book, Between Noon and Three. And if you're not fair, familiar with Capon, you, uh, you should read uh, Robert Capon. He says this, the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace Bottle after bottle, a pure distillate of scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they even started. Are you amazed by grace? They found amazing grace again in the Reformation and that's what we want to redefine this morning. The grace of God is amazing. We're going to look at four points this morning from Ephesians chapter 2 about why grace is so amazing to help us rediscover it. First, grace is amazing because it was desperately needed. Because it was so desperately needed. Here we want to look at verses 1 through 3. Before you can understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news. If a helicopter swoops down and rescues you in the middle of the ocean where you have been bobbing after a shipwreck for hours and hours and hours and perhaps days, it would be amazing. But it wouldn't be amazing to you if you didn't understand the dire straits that you are in. We will not know the pure, beautiful medicine of the gospel and how life-giving it is unless you know you need rescue. So three words, I'm going to give you an alliteration this morning. Three D words to help you understand what they're saying in verses 1 through 3 and how desperately we need the grace of God. The first is this, is Ephesians 1 verse 1 tells us that in our situation, we were dead. D-E-D, dead. We need grace because we were not sick. It's not because we were wounded. It's not because we were impaired. It was because we were dead. That is a stark term. You know, the movie, it's, it's got to be, if it's not one of your top five favorite movies, 
it's, it's, it should be. It should be, you, you're out. If this isn't, Princess Bride, Princess Bride, the great understanding of death is communicated in profound words in Princess Bride, right? When Wesley, oh, Wesley has undergone great torture at the, in, in whatever that tree house that he was in. And his friends, Uniga Montoya, and his friends come and save him from the torture, and they take him to who? They take him to Miracle Max. And they find Miracle Max, and they bring to Miracle Max, and they say, Miracle Max, we need a, we need a miracle. Our friend is dead, and Miracle Max says, no, 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 my friends. No, no, there is a great difference between dead and mostly dead. Your friend here is not dead. He is only mostly dead. If he was dead, there's only one thing left to do, right? To sift through his pockets for loose change. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2 says, not that we were mostly dead. Not that you could do very little. It says you were dead. And what can dead people do? Dead people, we ask this all the time. Dead people can do what? The answer is nothing, right? Dead people do nothing. I think the great description of our deadness comes right at the beginning of the Christmas carol, Charles Dickens' great story. And here's, here's how the Christmas carol begins. The opening lines are this. Marley. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail, This must be understood, or nothing may come of the story I am going to relate. That's essentially what Paul's saying in verses 1 through 3. You will not understand the grace of God till you understand just how dead of a doornail you were spiritually. Now, you are, of course, still alive physically. But this is speaking about who you were spiritually. In other words, I think the great imagery, and for some reason this has hit in our pop culture the last last decade or so, right? With The Walking Dead, is we were spiritual zombies, We were the living dead. That is who we were spiritually. That physically we seemed to have life, but spiritually there was no life. There was no soul there. There we were dead spiritually. We could not please God. We were not morally neutral. We were morally dead. We didn't want God. That's the first thing. The bad news is you were dead. The second thing, we were disobedient. Disobedient. This is in verse 2 and 3. gives this long description of what we followed. We follow, it says, the way of the world. And not only that, it gets even worse. If you follow the devil and you followed your own sinful desires. In the Greek, this word followed actually is the word mastered. You are mastered by the world. You are mastered by the devil. You are mastered by your sinful desires. It's information like the, you, you are, have experienced, the world has mastery over you in so many ways. Just think about it this way. One, one of the places, there's a hotel in Big Sur, California that overlooks the ocean. It's a beautiful place, and it costs over $2,000 a night to go stay in this hotel. But the kicker as to why so many people want to go to this hotel is that they have gone to great lengths to get rid of all technology. You cannot even pick up, they have made it so that you cannot pick up a Wi-Fi signal. You cannot bring a cell phone. There are no TVs. There are no radios. There are no clocks. No technology. So that you can completely disengage. Why? Why would we pay that much money? Because we are desperate to get away from the technology that controls us. And it does. The world has mastery over us. The devil, it says, even has mastery over us. Verse 3 says, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. You see, you have, the point here in Ephesians 2 is this. You, not only have you rejected God, but you've put somebody else in his place. And you know who you put in his place? You. You. Not only have you rejected him as king, but you have put yourself in, place, in his place. You are self-absorbed in your sinfulness. Living, everything is about your flesh and what you want. 
writes. Martin Luther, in the, in the Reformation, one of his writings in which he described mankind and how sinful and desperate we are for the grace of God, he says that mankind is in curvitas in se. It's a Latin word that means we are curved in on ourselves. That we are self-absorbed. We are self-obsessed. What is the most... What is the most popular type of picture in the world to take right now? We took a million of them the last three days, right? Because there was snow. And there is, but there is not snow unless it's like this. With snow in the background and my beautiful face standing in front of the snow. A selfie, about three or four years ago, it was the word of the year. Selfie. Why? Because we are self-obsessed. Now listen, it's, it's not millennials that are self-obsessed. We just have the technology to prove our self-obsession. We have always been this way. But what Paul is getting across and what is so awful about our deadness and our sin and the place we are in our depravity is it's not just that we are against God and it's not that we can't pursue God and please God. It's that we don't want to. We don't want to. It's not just that you don't want, you can't. It's that you don't want to. In your lostness, you don't want to please God. And Romans 3.10 says this, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one understands and no one who seeks God. Let me put it this way. This is an issue of your desires. That in our lostness, your desire is to have anything but God. You don't want God. You don't want grace. If I could illustrate it this way. If someone were to put, you were to go to lunch today, and someone were to put two options in front of you. One is cake. A wonderful piece of cake. Probably caramel cake. That's my favorite. With the layers of caramel. And the other one is monkey brains covered in excrement. Now, which would you choose? You would, of course, choose the cake. And you'd say, well, duh. But not only that, but I could put any number of a thousand items in front of you, and you would always choose anything other than the monkey brains with the excrement. Why? It's not that you can't. It's not that you're physically unable to eat them. It's that you don't want to eat them. And that is our nature and our desires. That's actually how we viewed God. We don't want him. We couldn't pursue him. We couldn't run after him because we didn't want him. At the core of our desires, we wanted to run far away from him. And this is who we were. This is who we are naturally. You know, it's interesting. People come, I get this as a front row seat where people come in and they sin big and they feel like they need to confess to somebody and they come in and they say, this just isn't me. And I want to be like, yes. Yes, it is you, but, right? Rob Gronkowski said it last, sorry, two weeks in a row with a football illustration, sorry to be a meathead, but last week, Rob Gronkowski destroyed somebody on the sideline, and after the game, Rob Gronkowski is like, I'm so sorry. It's just, this is, this, that was not me out there. Yes, it was you out there. You did it. You wanted to do it. That is, is according to your nature, so when you run from God, that is who you are, and here's the third part, the worst part, you were doomed. You're dead, you're disobedient, and verse 3 says you are doomed. It says you are by nature children of wrath. It means when you were born in this world, dead and disobedient, that the, the, the place, the, the trajectory and the direction of your life was to face the wrath of God. Kalen, which must, with, which must, with much humility this morning, affirmed our first confession of faith, our first affirmation in our membership vows. And it goes like this. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God? justly deserving his displeasure and without hope save in his sovereign mercy what we say the first thing that we say about ourselves when we become members of this church is that we deserve hell 
We deserve death because of our deadness spiritually, because of our disobedience, because of our rejection of God, because we have put ourselves at the core of life. Grace will not be amazing. It will not be amazing unless you see how desperately you need it. Martin Luther once again said this, God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. Do you know you were dead? That was your place. Grace will not be amazing to you unless you remember where he found you. Second, grace is amazing. Grace becomes amazing. It becomes amazing to us when we see how much was provided in it. Grace is amazing because so much was provided. Grace is a gift. It's a gift. But what was provided in that gift? Verse 4, 5, and 6. And verse 4 begins with the greatest line in all of Scripture, right? Verse 1 through 3 is really bad. Really bad. You're dead, you're disobedient, and you're doomed, and you're going to hell. Verse 4, but God. But God has intervened. But God has intervened, and he gave us a gift he gave us a gift, and here is the gift. It's three or his four parts to it. First, he made us alive together with Christ. Verse four, verse five, verse six. He raised us up with him. Verse six again, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then verse seven. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is an amazing thing. That the gift from God is that you're brought from death to life, from hell to heaven. That's what the gift is. That the trajectory of your life has radically changed. Your nature gets changed. Everything about your life gets changed because of your connection to Jesus Christ. Now understand this. The language here that it's using in the Greek is this word, all this with Christ, is this word sync. It's what undergirds it. which means together with. You are made alive. All these phrases in the Greek, it, we, it doesn't translate out in the, in the English because it would be too redundant. We don't necessarily like redundancies. But in the Greek, it goes like this. You are made alive together with Christ Jesus. You are raised together with Christ Jesus. You are seated in the heavenly places together with Christ Jesus. The word there, sync, or together with, is where we get um, synced, or uh, also the word, um, what's the word, synonymous. It means if Christ gets it, you get it. When you sync your iPhone and your computer, if one has it, the other has it. That's what it means. And what it means is this, is all the things that Jesus got. Jesus got resurrection. He was taken from death to life. Jesus was raised into glory and seated at the heavenly places next to God the Father. That if he gets that, you get that. And in fact, it's actually communicated in the perfect tense, in the past tense actually. It means that you already are legally your status as one who lives sitting in heaven. Of course, yes, physically your life right now is, is lived here on earth. But what it means is literally you are so secure in Christ Jesus. You are so connected to him the way God has connected you spiritually to Jesus. Is that there is a guarantee that you will be with him. That that life is for you. Now, this is the radical difference between religion and Christianity. Because religion would say this. You live your whole life to be acceptable. And then, and then God will say, yes, you get to be in heaven with me. But the truth of Christianity is this. Is at the beginning when God does his spiritual work in you and he connects you to Jesus. He says, right now, your legal status is not as one who's looking to be accepted. You are now accepted. You are now raised spiritually. You are now brought to new life. So that we are currently sitting in Carrollton, but spiritually in God's book, in God's eyes, you're seated with him in heaven. 
That's how God views you. What God did for Christ, he does for us. And the real kicker to me is verse 7. I didn't realize this. I mean, I've studied this passage over and over and over again in my life. But verse 7 is amazing. All those wonderful things about making you alive, raising you up, and seating you in the heavenly places is all this past grace is all so he can do what he wants to do in verse 7. So in the coming ages, he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, which means this. The cross, the Spirit's work, is merely a foretaste of all the grace that we get to experience in heaven. It means God is gracious to you now. He's been gracious to you in the past. It's so that he can pour out grace upon grace upon grace to you for all of eternity. That's how much is given. That's how amazing grace is. Grace, if you remember from Willy Wonka, grace is the everlasting gobstopper from God's. It never goes away. It just gets better. Third, third reason why grace is so amazing is because of its cost. If you're going to see grace is amazing, you've got to see its cost. We look at this from two different directions. First, grace costs you what? Nothing. It's a gift. It's free. And the grace seeing the fact that you were entirely acted upon. All the action in this verse, in these verses, is God acting on you. You didn't seek You didn't pursue, you didn't reach out, you didn't take the initiative. God did all the reaching, all the pursuing, all the initiative. He's the one who made you alive. Remember, you were dead. Dead people don't do anything. Someone alive had to do all the acting upon you. Ephesians 2 teaches what we, a big theological word, I'm going to give you a 50 cent word this this morning, that salvation is monergistic. With the word mono, one, ergos, work. Monro, monergistic, which means there is only one person who worked and it wasn't you. It is not synergistic. It is the work of our salvation is not God did 98% of it and we got to do our 2%. That's not how it works. No, monergism teaches and what the Bible teaches is that God did all the work from beginning to end. It is his grace from beginning to end. We should never think of salvation as a transaction where God provides grace and we provide a little faith and we mix them together and we put them in a shaker and we go, salvation! That's not how it works. God has done all the mixing We were dead, and we had to be brought back to life in order to believe. We're going to look more of that next week. It is not of your own doing, it says, right? It is not the result of works, your salvation. Salvation is a divine gift. So it costs you nothing. But is it free? It costs somebody. See, grace, while it costs you nothing, it costs Jesus everything. You've got to see the cost. It's free to you. But it costs Jesus everything. Do you know what the dark side of this truth is? Is the truth of our connection to Christ Jesus where you get all of his blessings. The other part of that is he got all the things that you deserved. All the things that you deserved. He got life after death. He got glory. He got the grace of the Father. He got the love of the Father. And so you get those things. But guess what? You were doomed for destruction. So he got your destruction. He got your forsakenness. He took your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the gospel in one verse and says this, God made him, that's Jesus, sin. He made him sin. Not that he acted sinful. He put all your sin upon him. He made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We call it the great trade. I ask this about in every one of our membership vows. And I go to the discovery class about if you want to be a member here, you have to know what the great trade is. Because the gospel is this. On the cross, a trade happened. Jesus took your sin and got what you deserved. And then he gave you his righteousness. And so you got what he deserved. You got what he deserved. In other words, God treats us according to Christ's righteousness. 
the cross of Christ, it ought to amaze you. Because Jesus poured his whole self out there. Grace is one of those, it's one of those vocabulary words for us as Christians. It is. It's like, it's like the leading Hallmark card word for Christians. We throw it on everything. We name our churches after it. We name our children after grace. We love this word grace. But grace, we can, we can become over-sentimentalized about grace. You understand that grace is serious business. It is very serious business because grace has to do dialogue with your sin. With all that's going on in verses 1 through 3, grace has to deal with that, which means this is serious stuff. You know how, how serious God takes it? Think about this, how God, how God deals with, with, with sin and how he displays it in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's grace is more than a whim of spineless capitulation to human whims and desires. God does not ignore the problem of sin, does he? He doesn't pretend that it doesn't exist. He feels like holy, hot, righteous anger towards our sin, but he wants to address it and be gracious to us. But there is a need for an atoning action in order to take away our sin, to take away that wrath, to take away all that unrighteousness. And so what does he provide the Old Testament believers? A sacrificial system that points forward to the ultimate sacrifice in Christ Jesus. Do you understand, like, do you understand how, how much you might, more you'd feel your sin if every time you sinned, you're like, all right, I got to kill the dog. And I don't just get to shoot him like old yeller. I got to slice him open. That's the sacrificial system. That we, every time I sin, I got to, this, this is how serious it is, that blood must be shed. This is what's going on here. You ever thought, this is, you know, we have the attitude of Adam and Eve about our sin. What do Adam and Eve cover themselves with? They sin, and they realize the shame of it. And so what do they cover their sin with? With leaves. Leaves are clean. We want to brush ourselves off with the leaves. And yet God shows at the very beginning of the garden that if our shame and our sin is going to be covered, what is it going to take? The shedding of blood because God comes, he slaughters an animal in their presence and puts upon them. Can you imagine the difference? To cover my shame, something had to bleed and die. And it's all pointing forward to what? The bloody sacrifice. Grace is bloody serious business. It is a bloody business. And that's why Jesus had to bleed. This biblical grace, God's response to sin how awful and violent and disgusting and ugly the sin is with the violent, raw action of the cross where Christ bled and died for you. It was not a mere land that was slaughtered for your sin. It was the Son of God. Do you feel, do you get a sense, the bleeding Christ? Bonhoeffer says this. Do you have a sense of your grace? He said, the grace of God is not cheap grace. Christ purchased this grace at a cost for which we cannot attach a price, but at which we can only simply be marveled and terrified in awe. That your sin is so costly that it took the blood of Jesus to pay for it. You see the cost. So that you may have the acceptance of God freely without cost. Last. Last, if you're going to be amazed by grace, you've got to see that grace is amazing because it makes you a work of art. A work of art. This is verse 9 and 10. This is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship. The word, the Greek word for workmanship is poema, from which we get the word poem. It means art. That workmanship, it means this is something beautiful. 
that when God, not only does he change your status legally, not only does he connect you to Christ so that you are raised from death to life, not only does he connect you and raise you and seat you with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, not only does he promise to pour out grace upon grace upon grace in the future, but he says, in between now and then, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you a beautiful piece of work of art. It's going to be a display of my great work in this world. Grace makes you a work of art. Grace makes you beautiful. When you've experienced grace, you become a beautiful person. You become beautiful to this world. I want to just point out two features of grace to get us towards our close this morning. Two features that grace produces in us. When, the, the, when, when grace paints upon us, here's what it produces. Grace paints humble people. Right? What does it say? It is not by works so that what? No one can boast. No one can boast. One of the main things of the Bible is this, that there is no boasting in yourself. You become a humble person. Jeremiah 9.23 says this, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, but not, not the rich man boast in his riches. Where is our boasting? Paul says, I boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. When grace comes to you, if you understand this grace, if you understand amazing grace, if it, has become, if it has amazed you, then you become a humble person. You become a humble person. You become, as Matthew 5, 3 puts it in the, in the Beatitudes, it's probably this thing that confuses us. What does it say there? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? All commentators say that, that what that means is that Christians who are poor in spirit is someone who recognizes, that like somebody who is in financial trouble, that they are desperately poor, that they have nothing in and of themselves, that you didn't save yourself, that you brought nothing to the game, and that you need the radical charity of God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That if you're poor in spirit, you wake up every day and you know I am a weak, sinful person, and I desperately need the grace of God. Not just yesterday, I need it today. And I need it tomorrow, and I need it the next day. That's the poor in spirit. And when you know you're a sinner saved by the sheer grace of God, and you had nothing to do it, you become spiritually poor. That's how you see yourself. And when that happens, when that happens, guess what? The way you view other people changes. You no longer view yourself as superior. Here's the reality for a lot of you, what you're, a lot of you are going to face in the next couple of weeks. You're going to go back, and you're going to engage with parents and siblings, and aunts and uncles. And we almost all have that sibling who's just a royal screw-up, right? I mean, they just can't seem to get, their life is a mess. I mean, at every turn, every opportunity, they just mess things up. And guess what? You get to hang out with those people for a couple days. And if it's like this, you're going to be stuck inside with them. It's going to be awful, right? And the reality of that is this. The difficulty for us is we looked down and we, we were like, man, we had the same life. We had the same parents. Why, what's going on with you? But that's a superior statement. That's a place where, that's a spiritual haughtiness and arrogance. When you actually are somebody who I've come to understand grace, you stop looking at your ridiculous prodigal younger brother or sister and you say, oh my word. They desperately need the grace of God because I need the grace of God. I know I need the grace of God. Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan, a 17th century British writer, wrote a book called The Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices. That's a nice, nice title to a book. But he talks about this, about how in that book he talks about how we all seek to get our self-esteem from what we boast in. That we're all, and he talks about the different classes, different socioeconomic classes. That the poor, they take their boasting, they get righteous, they become very self-righteous because they look at the rich and they go, look at that. They just got lucky. And they probably swindled their way 
And so because of that, they become so self-righteous, they become Robin Hoods, right? Oh, it's okay if I can just take this. Because I'll just take it from them because they just got lucky. This is all of luck, or they, they cheated from me in order to get this so I can cheat them back. The middle class, the middle class he talks about, the middle class look both ways. The middle class look down to the poor and go, if only they worked as hard as I did. But they look to the rich and they go, man, they must have cheated because I'm working really hard and I'm not quite as rich as them. So they must have cheated somewhere along the way. And the rich look down on both the classes and go, listen, listen, bro, you, you should have worked harder. I took advantage of the opportunities that I had, right? We all found, find our boasting no matter where we are in the socioeconomic run, we find some way to twist where we are and make it about our self-righteousness and we boast about it. But then when the gospel of grace hits you, it takes all that away. It takes it away. You don't get to boast anything but the cross. So the, the grace paints you humble. Second, grace paints you gracious. If you've experienced the grace of God, you become a person who gives grace to other people. And this is people who are Beautiful. Have you ever been around somebody who's humble and gracious to other people? I mean, you ever been around some person who just oozes humility and grace? They just kind of, they extend forgiveness. What, this is what, and this is what God is doing in you. He is making you a beautiful piece of art in a broken world. That's what he's trying to do. That you would stand out. That you would be a monument that testifies to the unbelievable grace of God. That you used to be that, and now you're this? You're this? In 1992, um, the lead cellist in the Sarajevo Symphony Orchestra, I lived in Sarajevo for a brief period of time in the early 2000s, and this story was fairly well known. The, this man, he, was the, he put on a black tie and his black tuxedo, and he took his chair, and he placed his chair in the middle of a bomb crater, and he began to play his cello. See, it was the day before that that creator had been created when a bomb had landed in the middle of a cafe, next to a breadline. It's called the Breadline Massacre, in which 22 of his friends and neighbors were killed. And so this man took his cello and all of his gifts and all the beauty that comes from that instrument, and he said, I'm going to go place it right in the place of hatred and destruction, and I'm going to play beautiful music there. And it became a pattern for the next three years of his life during the siege of Sarajevo that he would go where maybe no other, nobody else would go to various funerals, but he would be there playing at unknown people's funerals, in cemeteries. He was known to play in streets. He would play in streets where people, no one would dare walk because the snipers would find alleys among the hills of Sarajevo and they, people would be scared to walk those and he was there that he would go and he'd play his cello. What was he doing? He was a testimony of beauty and art in the midst of a place of utter brokenness and that's who God has called you to be. To be the person who enters into the darkest places of this world who says, I will not allow women to be battered by men. I'm going to enter into that kind of dark place. I will not allow children who have been beaten on and abused as young, I'm going to take them into my home. I'm going to enter and I'm going to create a place of beauty in their life. That's what the Christian does, the person who's experienced grace. I will not allow that person to die alone who has no family and no friends and they're an aged one and they are lost and they are lonely and there is no one to walk them to the other side, I will hold their hand. That's what somebody who's experienced grace does. And if you, I say, man, I think maybe one of the greatest experiences of it, if you've experienced grace, you become somebody who shows a beautiful forgiveness. You show forgiveness. You see, you might be able to go hold the old lady's hand who's dying, but she's never offended you. 
but you got to love that parent who puts you into counseling. That's really hard. That parent who's, who's crossed the boundaries a thousand times, that coworker or that roommate, that past husband, that spouse who wounded you so deeply. There was a man who was a director of worship and music at a very large church in Birmingham. This is a closing illustration this morning. This man had a, had a daughter, a son and a daughter, and his daughter was a student at Sanford University. Many of you are familiar with Sanford University. And one day, his daughter came home. This is in Birmingham, so she was able to get home rather quickly to do some laundry. She did her laundry. No one else was home. She did her laundry, and then she folded it up and put it back in her car. And as she was backing out of the car, they lived on a very busy street near a curve. A young man drove around the curve and completely blindsided her, killing her instantly. And so the day of the funeral, it was an incredibly long day. They had a long visitation. Over a 1,000 people showed up to shake this man's hand, he and his wife and his family, to grieve with them. They had the memorial. They had the graveside service. And then after all the crowds had dissipated, he was there with just a few of his closest friends and family, just a few of them. They gathered together, and they got in the car, and they went to the home of the 16-year-old boy who had killed their daughter. You see, the young man who was driving the car also went to the church where this man was a pastor. And he went to that young man's house and he sat down with him and he said, my daughter's life is over and I have grieved her today. But what I am most concerned about is this, is I'm afraid we might lose you too. And so I want you to know this, I love you. Who could do such a thing? God did that. That's where we understand how to do that. Because he said, you killed his son. You blindsided his son with your sin. And yet it was in that God said, I've forgiven you. And I love you. And I'm going to call you mine so that I may not lose you too. Ephesians 2 says, why would he do that? It says, because he loves us. (laughs) That's amazing. Do you understand that? I don't get it. Dr. Kistemacher, who was an old man, a Dutch theologian who's taught at a Reformed Theological Seminary when I was there, he, was during, he died a few years after my wife and I left there, and he was one of those, he oozed this, but he was a man of unbelievable learning. And one day, one of his students, just asking one of the stupid questions that seminary people ask, and he, and he asked him this, they asked him this, what's the most difficult passage in the whole Bible to understand? Thinking he was going to bring something up from like Revelation or Leviticus, and Dr. Christmacher pondered for a second, looked up, and he said this. The verse that confounds me over and over and over again is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, would have everlasting life. He said, in all my years of learning, I have yet to understand the love of God. Are you amazed by the grace of God? I hope you are. Let's pray. Oh, God, um, I think I remember there's a song we've sung here before that talks about you removing our boulders, the boulders of law, but we take it and we put them right back on. Oh, gracious God, we, we, um, we, need, we, need to, we need your grace to be amazing to us again, to remove the boulders that we carry the boulders that make us feel ashamed, 
and lost and low. And yet, oddly enough, those same boulders that make us feel arrogant and prideful. (laughs) We are such schizophrenic people. And only the grace of Jesus can break that down. So gracious God, would you amaze us? Would you help us to remember our story? That we remember where we were, how lost we were when you found us. We remember what it costs for you to bring us home. And Lord, we would live into the beautiful piece of art that you're making us to be. God, gracious God, I thank you that that is indeed what you're doing. God, affirm that for some people in this room this morning. That when they look at their life and maybe they failed big time this week, that the truth is this, that God's grace has given them to the past and for the future, but it's also given to them right now that they are being made beautiful to look like Jesus. Man, thank you for the grace of Jesus. We praise you. It's in his precious name we pray, amen.